0: March is colon cancer awareness month, and we are back with the promised episode of screening and surveillance for colorectal cancer. We have with us for the second part of colon cancer prevention series, Dr. Venu Bhatini. Dr. Bhatini agreed to come back to the show a second time, but for our first time audience, I would like to introduce one of the most phenomenal oncology attendings at University of Massachusetts. Dr. Batini completed his medical residency and Hemong Fellowship training at University of Massachusetts and went on to complete his geriatric fellowship at Harvard Medical School and is currently the Program Director of the Hematology-Oncology Fellowship at University of Massachusetts. Dr. Batini's clinical and research interests include gastrointestinal cancers and geriatric oncology. Dr. Batini, I welcome you back to the fifth episode of Hemong for the Internist. Thanks,
1: Desha. Glad to be back.
0: Yeah, we're excited to have you back. Um, I would love for us to get started where we left off during the last episode. We touched upon the pathogenesis of colorectal cancers and the most commonly board-tested hereditary colon cancer syndromes. This episode, though, is dedicated to screening and surveillance for colon cancer. Dr. Vithini, I would like to start this episode by narrating an incident that happened in clinic a few weeks ago. Um, You know, I had a patient who I saw with my preceptor, uh, Dr. Andrew Sieber, and uh, this patient was followed by Dr. Sieber for a very long period of time and I was seeing her that day in clinic. She had undergone a colonoscopy when she had turned 50 and she was absolutely dreadful of the prep. I talked to her about the importance of getting another one when I saw her in clinic now she was sixty. And she also had this anemia which was going on and I was extremely concerned. I tried, but I couldn't convince her to be agreeable to it. You know, I went out, I told my preceptor that I tried and failed, he said, Well, let's give it a try. Uh went in the room and you know, after walking through most of the other updates, Dr. Siever brought up this matter and quote, he said, Jane, let's assume her name is Jane. um, I have known you for so many years and you're such a wonderful person. I would hate to lose you to colon cancer. Of all the ways one could possibly die, I wish you wouldn't have picked this one. And then he stalled. Jane looked at me and then him and said, well, okay, let's give it a second chance even though i had beaten about the bush and said the exact same thing i couldn't convince her to agree with me but i have since found this impactful statement to be of use you know she agreed to colonoscopy but let's assume for a second that she did not i also recently read that nearly one out of three u.s individuals who qualify for screening have not been screened this means there's certainly a barrier and if another easier modality could be chosen what do we choose from
1: thank you disha that's a good uh, way to start uh, with the clinic experience that you had first of all let me say this uh, it's not something that uh, you have done uh, counseling in a different manner but i think uh, you know as we all know dr Sieber is a wonderful physician mm-hmm. and probably counseling Done by two different providers may have had an impact, and mm. uh, obviously, you know, sometimes the choice of words that one provider uses may be more impactful, mm-hmm. and that's more than anything else. I don't think anything uh, you would have done differently. And I always say to the trainees that uh, you pick up each and every little thing from different different providers when you're working and develop your own style of uh, how to counsel these patients in these situations. Absolutely. Now, I agree with uh, you as well. Um, of course, in this particular patient, uh, since the patient already has an anemia and you wanted to evaluate for GI losses uh, uh, in terms of the blood loss, so it could be both a diagnostic as well as a screening modality for colorectal cancer. But let us hypothetically assume that where you have a patient, uh, you know, where they are not willing to undergo colonoscopic evaluation, what are the various mm-hmm. screening strategies we have and we could go from there. Mm-hmm. I also want to get back to the, the statement that you brought up about uh, one third of the, you know, American population did not, uh, do not undergo screening. Yes, that is true. Uh, it's uh, uh, unfortunate and sad that uh, despite uh, the available test and the resourceful country that we have here, still uh, one third of the patients do not undergo any form of screening that they're supposed to undergo.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And American Cancer Society has actually estimated that uh, if we can improve the screening percentage by additional 15,
2: mm-hmm. okay,
1: you could save at least uh, 10,000 lives per year. Oh, per wow. 10,000 lives per year. So, Wow. That the reason I'm bringing that up is it emphasizes uh, how much responsibility we have to take as providers to convince and counsel the patients you know, uh, for these uh, screening interventions. So let me move on to first uh, um, talk about the various colorectal cancer screening strategies that we have, mm-hmm. and then uh, I will uh, address the question about uh, how to choose for the patients. Right. So let's divide the screening uh, test. There are two categories, I would say. One is a stool-based test, which primarily is to detect the cancer that they talk about. And there are uh, visualization tests where you can aim at uh, cancer prevention and as well as uh, you know diagnosing the colorectal cancer as well. Mm. So on the stool-based test, we have the you know, historical you know, guac, fecal occult blood testing. Mm-hmm. Guac is uh, nothing but it's a um, resin uh, derived from the guacam tree where it's also not only used uh, uh, in medical tests such as testing for the blood, but it also used it as a food preservative and also sometimes in the varnishes for furniture, painting oh, and everything, yeah. Okay. So that's what they use the principle in uh, identifying the uh, blood. Now, although it is very sensitive, it does not differentiate whether it is an upper GI blood loss or a lower GI blood loss. All it says is there's a blood loss that is there. And the, um, it's a chemical based test mm-hmm. with the reaction with the GUAC that uh, patients would be detected that they have the blood. but the uh disadvantages is um, that um it's not like uh, something that would have a very high specificity even though the sensitivity is good there are lots of uh, false positives and the uh, dietary restrictions or the medication restrictions people have to follow mm-hmm. because there could be you know a uh, wide variety of uh, uh, vegetables and fruits or the medication that could be contributing to the false positive tests or false negative tests for that matter too why because this is test is based on the peroxidase test mm-hmm. so anything that involves in that uh, you know peroxidase uh, involvement is there that could lead to this false uh, positive or negative test Right now the um, advantages is because it's a simple test to be done okay and it does not require significantly ball preparation not too much transportation is needed so these days uh, they recommend doing uh, three tests they give the providers will give the stool cards to the patients mm-hmm. and they will uh, do it at different different uh, intervals and then send the, all the t- stool uh, cards back to the you know office and then they will be checked on whether there is a blood or not okay. and the reason why they do that is to increase the you know detection rates hmm. because in the past we may do we may have done only one but doing once may miss the opportunity to detect the blood if there is any intermittent bleeding going on so hmm. the three tests at different intervals over a period of you know 2 or 3 days might increase their chance of detection so that's one thing okay. the second test uh, that uh, we talk about is a fit test You know, fecal uh, immunochemical testing, where this is also used to detect the blood, but it's it's an immune-based test, so antibodies are used to detect the blood, and the advantage here is this is primarily to check the lower GI tract, so it does not interfere with any of the upper GI ones. So it detects directly the, you know, the blood that's based on the antibody testing. This again the. Advantage here is you don't need to have any of those dietary or medication restrictions that I talked about earlier and everything too. Mm -hmm. Uh, The interval, how often you do these stool based tests, the two that I talked about is once a year,
2: Hmm. okay,
1: is once a year. And we do have a good uh, evidence when it comes to guac fecal occult blood testing is the reduction in mortality has been demonstrated with that as well. The third test is a fit DNA testing, which, uh, again, um, uh, the specificity is low. There are a lot of false positives that you could uh, have. And sometimes these false positives could lead to, you know, over-testing with a follow-up colonoscopy and the implications of that. Mm-hmm. Again, this is a um, uh, disadvantage, something that I feel like you have to send the entire stool sample rather than just the stool, uh, um, a small portion of it. Right. Because the entire stool could should be sent out too. So these are the stool-based tests. Then let's move on to the, you know, direct visualization-based test. So obviously we are all very familiar with the colonoscopy and we encourage patients to undergo colonoscopy too. Now, um, um, the disadvantages here, why people feel nervous about it is, you know, obviously this needs to be done in a, under a sedation yeah. and you need to have a patient accompanied by somebody else because they cannot be, you know, driven, driving back to their home mm-hmm. not only that the bowel preparation is one of the scariest things yeah. that some patients will have and uh, probably one of the patients that you are experiencing yeah, that you're mentioning is also PTSD. the same
0: situation <laughs> yeah
1: exactly and it can be you know very devastating the amount of uh, you know bowel movements that they would have it just feels like uh, right. gushing out everything uh, and they can feel drained out from that if they don't keep up with their fluid intake right. so those are the you know the disadvantages uh, that they have, but obviously, these days they're recommending what we call it as a split dose preparation. So, you do a portion of it the day uh, before the mm-hmm. procedure, and you do the portion of the preparation on the exact day of the colonoscopy. Oh, okay. That is something that has, uh, uh, you know, improved the compliance of the patients. Uh, it won't be that much. Uh, you know, dramatic uh, ball movements uh, people will have.
2: Mm, and the, one of the
1: advantages of this split preparation is also, you know, sometimes if you do all the preparation the day before and if you don't do anything the day, actually the procedure, especially if it is later in the day or in the afternoon, the secretions in the small bowel and everything still will can form a residue in the colon and ah. that could be not a clean colonoscopy people may mm. have so that's very important to recognize
2: to It's
1: uh, important to also note that still it can have a miss rate of up to you know 10% too, uh, especially when you're having uh, something that is very flat polyps or so, mm. that could be there So moving on to the other uh, endoscopy techniques is the flexigmoidoscopy mm-hmm. The advantage here is sometimes you could do this just without any sedation for most part and patients could drive back to home by themselves mm-hmm. the as you know that you know uh, the flexible sigmoidoscopy we are using the word so it only visualizes the left side of the colon with the rectum as well as up to the you know splenic flexure like mm-hmm. the sigmoid colon mm-hmm. it does not look into the proximal colon aspects and uh, you know that uh, uh, there are significant uh, number of uh, colorectal cancer that occurs in the proximal colon as well. The colonoscopy has the advantage of not only visualizing all the way up to the cecum, but also the terminal ileum portion too, whereas the sigmoidoscopy stops at the splenic flexure. Right. So that's uh, something to be, you know, uh, uh, remembered. But both of them are at least, uh, you know, accepted uh, uh, standards in terms of the screening. The sometimes the flexible sigmoidoscopy can also be combined with the stool uh, you know uh, fit test okay which would enhance the detection rate maybe if somebody sigmoidoscopy is negative but the fit test is positive that may be the motivation to do the colonoscopy to complete it and see if there is any proximal colon polyps or cancers are detected there Mm -hmm. the other modalities like um, imaging modalities like ct colonography is there but This also is not going to exclude the patients from not having a ball preparation. They still need to have the ball preparation for the Mm. colon to be visualized. But it is something, uh, a non-invasive modality that uh, people could uh, uh, look up to. But the disadvantage is sometimes you can come across lots of non-specific extracolonic uh, findings that can create more anxiety to the patients as well. Mm. So that also needs to be taken into account. Now, when it comes to the frequency of this testing, obviously, if it is a colonoscopy, uh, one thing to remember is uh, if you have a high colon- high quality colonoscopy that is done, and if it that is negative, and an average risk individual, okay, then there is no need to do another colonoscopy or any other screening modalities for another you know ten years. This mm-hmm. is called as choose wisely right. campaign, uh-huh. okay? Yep. Whereas if it is a flexible sigmoidoscopy, you need to do it every. Five years, okay? Okay. Um, that's one thing. And then um, sometimes people would argue if you use the flexig with the fit test every year, okay, you could also extend the interval to uh, 10 years as well, too. Okay. Okay. But that depends on whether if the fit test is negative. If the fit test is positive, then obviously all, bet, all bets would be off. If the sigmatoscopy is negative, you have to go back and do the colonoscopy, too. Okay? Mm-hmm. So those are the various uh, tests that we have, stool-based and uh, visualization-based test. Mm-hmm. Most important thing to remember is any of the stool-based testing, if it turns out to be positive, okay, or any of the non-endoscopy, non-colonoscopy-based testing is positive, so, uh, okay, you must follow with a colonoscopy right okay that is the that then only you can say that the screening in this particular individual is complete Mm. okay now when it comes to the screening test what one needs to recognize the fact is there is no head-to-head comparison to say one test is better over the others yeah
0: i was going to ask
1: that yeah yeah so although the tests all have been shown to have various level of evidence supporting their effectiveness in the colorectal cancer screening but in between between the, that each modality, there is no uh, head-to-head comparison that is there. Okay. That is one important thing, including when it comes to colonoscopy also. There is no randomized controlled trial that has shown that the colonoscopy has reduced the colorectal cancer-specific mortality. Then huh. where is the evidence coming from? So yeah. there is definitely in, indirect evidence is there, and also evidence, uh, uh, decent evidence coming from the prospective cohorts, of the population in patients who have undergone colonoscopy, where the precancerous lesions are detected or early cancer is detected, has clearly shown to reduce the colorectal cancer mortality. Mm. So that is something important to remember. Although there are at least five to six studies, prospective studies, mm. uh, randomized control trials are ongoing compared with colonoscopy to the other screening modalities, but the, those studies uh, still yet to be uh, completed and uh, reviewed the data. Oh,
0: that's okay? interesting to know, yeah. Okay. Yeah.
1: The second thing to um, also recognize is when it comes to USPSTF task force, I mean, United States Preventive Services Task Force, there is no single colorectal cancer screening modality that has reduced all cause mortality. Okay. Sometimes, you know, the USPS task force is very particular about looking at the strength of evidence much more strongly. Mm-hmm. And uh, they make their recommendations based on taking all the uh, different levels of evidence and give a guidance, which we'll go over in the, in the next section there, though. Mm-hmm. Now, I want to get back to your question that you brought up. Yeah. How would you, you know, use the patients who refuse to go for colonoscopy. Yeah, okay.
2: yeah, absolutely. What
1: is important to recognize is there is no one single best test when it comes to the screening strategies that I highlighted, mm-hmm. okay? And I already highlighted the reasoning there too. Yeah. You must take into the consideration of the patient preferences, okay? While we counsel everybody, but we also have to take into consideration of the patient preferences and the likelihood of these um, um, these uh, uh, availability of the test and the resources for follow up and everything should be taken into, uh, into account. And making sure that the patients will be compliant to this test.
2: Mm. Okay?
1: It will be easy to convince somebody if one of the screening tests is positive, for example, a non colonoscopy test is positive.
2: Mm-hmm. Then it
1: will be easy for us to counsel them hey, here. This yeah. is, we went with your choice, mm-hmm. but this is what it showed mm-hmm. as a positive test. Mm-hmm. It is now, now time for you to think very hardly to get the colonoscopic interventions. There it becomes much more easier for us. Right. So for if our goal in a population-based, uh, uh, you know, in a community setting to increase the percentage of uh, screening, I think getting them to one or other screening modality is more important. Mm. And convincing them later if they test positive, to a more appropriate, uh, you know, screening test such as colonoscopy would be much easier. So that's that where I would uh, leave it as.
0: Okay, that sounds very good, Dr. Batini. I was also recently reading about these serum DNA testing, like biomarkers for screening. What is your opinion on those?
1: Yeah, so let me address that one. Um, it's not that popular uh, screening uh, modality. There is a serum circulating methylated septin nine DNA testing is mm. called as sept t nine DNA test. Mm. This is uh, interestingly this is approved uh, by the FDA as one of the screening strategy now. There is one of the societies, multi-society task force, does not recommend this uh, testing, but because of the sensitivity for detecting uh, colorectal cancer is uh, estimated around uh, close to a little less than fifty percent. Mm. So that's one of the reasons why it has not been that much popular. But I'll tell you why the FDA has approved. FDA has clearly mentioned when they are giving the approval for patients who decline any of the other screening strategies that are recommended either by the USPS task force or the American College of Physicians, for those patients, this will be an additional test that they could consider for, as a screening strategy. Again, emphasizing here to increase the population towards more screening tests mm. for them to take it to the completion. Mm -hmm. And again, if somebody has a positive test, it might be easier for those patients to get on, to convince them to get a colonoscopy and then go from there. But usually that's not one of the popular thing Mm -hmm. that is being uh, covered in the various uh, colorectal cancer screening tests. but it's important uh, probably for you to remember since it's a FDA approved test that is out there Mm -hmm. and it's a serum based test where patients may feel a little bit more... uh, uh, accepting because mm-hmm. it's, a, it's a blood draw rather mm-hmm. than the stool related ones that right. which might, some patients might feel uncomfortable mm. and you never know sometimes you may have uh, some cultural barriers for certain patients who don't wanted to go with the stool based or colonoscopy based test so for right. those people it's an added uh, modality that you have as a screening strategy.
0: Absolutely so yeah. the bottom line being you know you should pursue a strategy which has the highest likelihood of completion.
1: That's exactly the message that we want to convey to all the providers.
0: Okay. Um, and Dr. Batini, you mentioned like the multi-society task force, but I know there are several guidelines, several committees. Which, What is your opinion on those? Which ones should we follow?
1: Yeah. So to address that question, I think, uh, you know, the strongest uh, one we have historically is United States Preventive Task Force. Um, that's one, and then we also have, uh, because we are talking about the internists here, we have uh, American College of Physicians too. So most of the times, the for the you know average risk individuals, the recommendations will go along between these two. So I would probably go with those uh, two things, and I would like to highlight uh, one thing. So mm-hmm. the USPS task force uh, clearly defined uh, for an average risk individual. That means there's no personal history of cancer, there's no family history of cancer, Uh, or no familial cancer syndromes, okay? For those average risk, the highest yield and the substantial benefit that you would derive is between the ages 50 to 75 years, okay? More than 75 years, the screening benefit is very small,
2: Hmm.
1: okay? So that's why they're not uh, that picky about recommending strongly. Mm -hmm. However, if somebody has a family history or someone who did not have any prior screening testing i think in those uh, patients it is reasonable provided if they have a you know decent life expectancy and no other comorbidities So that's what I would go. Mm -hmm. So let us, uh, you know, review what these, uh, you know, the average risk when it comes to ACP for uh, various screening modalities. Mm -hmm. If it is colonoscopy that one is doing, like I said, every 10 years, Mm -hmm. if it is flexible sigmoidoscopy that you are combining with fit testing uh, every 2 years, then you could do every 10 years, Mm. okay? Or uh, if it is uh, just a FIT or a high-sensitivity GOAC-based uh, testing, then every two years has acceptable screening modality. So this is pretty much uh, you go with this one. Okay. Um, there is also the multi-society task force have divided various tier system, like mm. you know first-tier test yeah. when it comes to colonoscopy and the FIT test are included in this one whereas uh, CT colonography uh, or the fit fecal DNA testing and the flexible sigmoidoscopy are recommended as a second-tier test. Okay. And the capsule colonography, colonography is uh, like a third-tier testing. Okay. But it's too cumbersome, I feel like, so I think yeah. I would like to you know keep it uh, simple. Now, I also wanted to add here, most importantly what we tend to uh, forget and we must remember is there is also a choose wisely campaign when it comes to screening. And I would like to highlight, uh, you know, a couple of societal recommendations here. When it comes to American Gastroenterology Association, as I was mentioning also in the USPS task force and the ACP recommendations as well, if you really have a very high quality colonoscopy, okay, and that is negative, and that's a patient who is an average risk, there's no need to do any kind of screening modality hmm. until 10 years. Hmm. Okay,
2: mm-hmm.
1: that is one. When it comes to American College of Surgeons, they are also recommending to avoid colorectal cancer screening in someone who is asymptomatic and having less than ten years of life expectancy, provided there is no family history or personal history of colorectal cancer.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Okay, because the chances of you really making a difference in their you know mortality mm-hmm. is very low. Right. So there is no reason to. Uh, Push for them. The other one, which is uh, I'm, you know, fond of because of the geriatric population, <laughs> is the American Geriatric Society has also outlined, and this is something that I use in my practice as well too. I always weigh in when I see an elderly patients the actual life expect the estimated life expectancy they have, mm-hmm. the risks of the procedures that are involved, and uh, from those uh, test testing, what is the Positivity. what is the over-diagnosis and over-testing, mm-hmm. okay. and over-treatment, I meant to say, over-diagnosis and over-treatment. These are all the factors I weigh into account before I recommend testing our screening modality. This is not only for colorectal. I think the same principle should be applied for the breast cancer, prostate cancer, and lung cancer. So the American Geriatric Society takes all these factors into account, uh, should uh, at least recommends for the elderly people all these factors to be taken into account to weigh in before they make a final recommendations. Hmm. So this is what we call it as a choose wisely uh, campaign. Hmm.
0: Okay. 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 Sounds good. So we have talked about a lot of different things here. Let me recapitulate a bit. Um, The methods of screening essentially include these broad categories, whether it's tool-based tests there's visualization and there is a serum-based test. Among the stool-based tests, we have the guayak based uh, stool studies or the FIT testing or the FIT DNA testing. Uh, most of these happen like every year. Uh, among the visualization, it could be direct visualization with endoscopic techniques like colonoscopy or sigmoidoscopy. With colonoscopy happening every 10 years if it's a good quality according to choosing wisely, or with sigmoidoscopy, it can happen every five years if it's standalone, or if you combine it with a stool-based, it could happen every 10 years. Uh, with indirect visualization, it's the CT colonography or the virtual colonoscopy, uh, which is not highly recommended, but if it were to happen, then every five years could be the recommendation. And then the serum-based test, which is the Septin 9 uh, DNA test, uh, which is also not a very highly sensitive test, but could be used as a very last resort and it's not recommended currently by MSTF. Mm-hmm. Dr. Bathini, we talked about the average risk individuals already. Uh, what about the screening for the non-average risk people?
1: Yes, this year, so... This uh, particular, uh, outside the non-average risk, then you have uh, two categories. One is uh, increased risk, and the other one is a high risk. High risk, we already talked about uh, a bit during our uh, initial uh, talk, and which includes the hereditary cancer syndromes like uh, FAP Lynch syndrome. Mm. And um, among the non-familial, of course, you know, inflammatory bowel disease patients also would come into the high risk category. Let me just uh, close the loop on the high risk first. If it is a FAP patients, you should start the screening at age 10 Mm. and repeat the colonoscopy every one to two years until you have a colectomy performed. And if it's a Lynch syndrome, double that. Start at age 20 or 10 years younger than the first uh, uh, family member diagnosed with the colorectal cancer. And then uh, whichever is earlier, Mm. okay, either age 20 Mm. or if it is less than 20, that means somebody in the family members have been diagnosed, uh, you know, Um, a little bit earlier too. And then you repeat the same thing, colonoscopy every one to two years in the Lynch syndrome patient population too. The other high risk group is inflammatory bowel disease patients, Um, this I want to emphasize because there is a 2.7 fold increase in the risk of colorectal cancers especially in somebody who has eight or more years of uh, disease mm. with them so for example if somebody has been diagnosed in their uh, mid 20s or mid 30s okay you don't wait for their 50 years of age group if they have reached their you know you know late uh, early 30s or late 30s that means those patients should be undergoing uh, you know colonoscopy as well to to pick up the early cancer risk and everything so those are the high risk groups that i would like to you know highlight on so next moving on to the increased risk this becomes a little bit uh, you know tricky with the first degree relatives how many members are there this and that yeah. so i would like to say that uh, the increased risk will come anybody with a family history of cancers but there is no defined hereditary syndrome that you could associate with hmm. okay these are the category of people that would be grouped into the increased risk here if you have a colorectal cancer that is diagnosed in anybody who is less than 60 years or if it is more than two members diagnosed irrespective of the age mm-hmm. you start the screening at age 40 or 10 years earlier than the age group that the first degree relative was diagnosed whichever okay. is coming first mm-hmm. and then do the colonoscopy every 5 years oh, in those okay. individuals mm-hmm. okay mm-hmm. if somebody is diagnosed with colorectal cancer in the first degree relative more than 60 years of age you go with the average like uh, 50 years of age, mm-hmm. okay? And uh, pick up uh, you know any modality, but the important thing is to make sure that you're following those patients also, including colonoscopy uh, every 10 years, okay?
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Now, the next one which is included in the increased risk is, Here it comes the definition of uh, screening versus surveillance. That is about the patients who already have a history of colon cancer. That means it's a personal history of colorectal cancer. These also are grouped into the high risk. Now here, once you make the diagnosis of colorectal cancer, every patient should undergo a repeat colonoscopy in one year time, okay? And thereafter, it will be in three years, provided that one year colonoscopy is normal. And if three years colonoscopy is normal, then you extend the interval to five years, Mm. okay? Like that, you go on until uh, there, you know, whatever the life expectancy is estimated to be um, reasonable enough to continue the screening modality. Or in other words, as long as you believe the benefits outweigh the risks, then you continue on those patients. So this, I would say, is kind of as a surveillance mm-hmm. rather than a real screening because they already had been diagnosed with uh, colorectal cancer before. So you are doing a surveillance of this patient population.
2: Mm-hmm. Okay.
1: So that's okay. that's where uh, I would say the two different groups of uh, patients. Right. There are some other groups that I would like to emphasize. Is if somebody is also having some uh, uh, risk. There is no defined, uh, you know, strat- uh, age group when you should start them, but to keep in mind, if somebody in, during their childhood, for whatever reason, for previous other cancers, they have undergone abdominal radiation, mm. those are the patients who could also be at risk of uh, developing the colorectal cancers, depending on the location. So it's not unreasonable to start screening them you know, uh, relatively early on. And again, I could not tell exactly the you know, age cutoff when you should start. Probably maybe about 10 years uh, uh, out from their initial radiation, it's not unreasonable to do
0: that. I see. Yeah. Okay, so besides these categories, do you do you think of any other like special populations where you would want to screen more rigorously earlier? What are your thoughts on that?
1: Yeah. So we covered the inflammatory bowel disease group, which also came in the high risk. But there's, uh, you know, population-wise, uh, African American population is something that we should not forget mm. because uh, we have known from the data, population-based studies, colorectal cancer can occur earlier in this uh, ethnic group. So probably doing this um, uh, screening, especially the American Cancer Society, do recommend screening African-Americans starting from age 45.
0: Oh, interesting, okay. Okay. So
1: that's something that I would like to keep in mind.
0: Okay. So that was a lot about screening, but what happens when we actually find something on a colonoscopy, like we find a polyp? What What do we do with that?
1: So that brings to the question about the surveillance of, uh, you know, um, after the screening colonoscopy test to be positive, right? Mm -hmm. So before I uh, move on to that uh, segment, uh, Desha, I just wanted to also mention about other uh, population that could be at increased risk is uh, patients who have undergone... um, some surgeries, particularly like the bladder surgeries, where they undergo ureterocolonic anastomosis, those patients should be uh, bear in mind that uh, because of the chronic uh, constant inflammation that mm. goes on, those patients could be at a risk of uh, developing colorectal cancer. Interesting. So um, just let's move on to the uh, surveillance of the, after detecting the polyps. You know, we have uh, previously talked about adenomatous polyps where you have tubular adenoma tubulovillous adenoma and villous adenoma and you have also serrated polyps where you can have the hyperplastic polyps or sessile serrated polyps hmm. without any uh, with or without any dysplasia mm-hmm. or the third one is traditional serrated adenoma Hmm. The other group include hematomatous polyps and inflammatory polyps. So these are the various categories that we have. But broadly, you can say that uh, adenomatous polyps and serrated polyps, how do you choose the interval to the next colonoscopy? Mm
2: -hmm.
1: I must uh, say here, because even we as uh, oncologists, when these uh, polyps are detected, Different, different gastroenterologists will put the recommendation, want to do the colonoscopy in three years, some will say five years, some will say in two years. There's such a variation is there. And when I look back and think about why this is so much variation, is why there is no one uniformity about the, you know, screening, I mean, surveillance interval when they find these ones is, it's important to recognize the, the strength of uh, uh, evidence and the quality of evidence is not that great. The strength of evidence is uh, very weak and the quality of evidence when it comes to these surveillance interventions is also very low. Mm. So that's why you see much of a variation there. I don't know whether the boards or the internees should keep on remembering this one. Yeah, so it's, it's a lot of information. Uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's too much. Even for yeah. the oncologist, it's too much. I think it's probably better to go back and, uh, you know, review. But I will try to highlight what is important: is whether it is um, you know adenomatous polyp or uh, uh, serrated polyps. If you are seeing a polyp that is greater than one centimeter, just be vigilant and try to make sure that they get to the gastroenterologist for a surveillance colonoscopy. Okay, that is more important. Whether it is you know three years. Uh, or a little bit uh, shorter can vary depending also the number of polyps that you tend to see of greater than one centimeter okay when it comes to the um, the um, uh, the other ones is um, polyposis syndromes those are different okay Serrated polyposis syndrome then you need to do every year mm. in the in those patients the second thing that i might uh, think whether i'm I'm not sure whether it will come to the internal medicine boards, but definitely for hemonc boards, you need to remember is um, what you have a polyp that's large enough, but that was only extracted piecemeal. Mm. You did not feel like you have completely removed it, even though you felt you took it in bits and pieces. And if they don't have any kind of, uh, you know, high grade dysplasia or carcinoma in situ, then you should go back and do the repeat colonoscopy in six months okay mm-hmm. and then you have to do it in 1 year and then after 3 years so that is what we call it as piecemeal removal of any adenomatous polyp you need to be mindful about that one too so that's not a good sign and sometimes it's difficult for the gastroenterologist to, to remove it uh, like a, a nice uh, polypectomy snaring it out and everything
0: okay? right okay
1: the interesting thing is um uh, about the hyperplastic polyps yeah okay
2: yeah
1: i want to bring that one too Historically, even when, uh, you know, I was a med student and a fellow and during my residencies, we always believed that hyperplastic polyps are not having the malignant potential. Mm. But uh, lately, they have found some slight increased uh, uh, association with colorectal cancer as well. So, in other words, to best describe is hyperplastic polyps are not completely harmless. Yeah. Okay. Okay.
0: Okay. So
1: even in those scenarios, if you have the increased number of, uh, you know, hyperplastic polyps and the increase in the size of the hyperplastic polyps, you need to be vigilant about the, you know, surveillance interval colonoscopy too. Got
0: it. That's a good fact to remember. Yeah. Dr. Bhatini, we have delivered a lot of information. I believe uh, our audience is feeling extremely rich with knowledge at the moment. But could you summarize all that we talked about um, in some, in, you know, in some brief sentences?
1: Yes, Disha. So um, I would uh, say by beginning again, um, the emphasizing the importance of uh, understanding and recognizing various screening modalities and making sure to adapt to one or other to mm. increase the compliance of screening by the patients. Mm. And whether it is uh, you start with uh, invasive colonography, colonoscopy or non-invasive stool-based testing or non-invasive CT colonography, the bottom line is to ensure that patients choose what appeals to them and take it to the completion. It's much easier to convince after the non-colonoscopy-based testing is positive to get them to the colonoscopy.
0: Okay. Mm -hmm.
1: The second uh, point that I would like to uh, emphasize is any of the non-colonoscopy-based testing is positive. Mm. They must be followed by colonoscopy. Mm. Now, for that matter, even I would say if somebody has a flexible sigmoidoscopy that is positive, remember that you are only reviewing on the left side of the colon all the way up to the splenic flexure. So if that is positive, that means there could be more seen in the proximal colon as well. So that also needs a completion colonoscopy. That's my second uh, you know, summary statement that I would like to highlight. And uh, second, the third thing is to recognize the uh, average risk, increased risk, and high-risk individuals to decide on the screening interval. Mm. And obviously, we talked about the USPS Task Force and American College of Physicians, and then we talked about the average, um, the increased, and in high risk as well. But also want to highlight not to forget the special population of uh, African American ethnicity and uh, childhood cancer survivors who have received abdominal radiation, mm-hmm. or patients who have uh, surgeries on the bladder, like urethrocolonic anastomosis. Okay. okay. And I also want to emphasize is um, the another summary statement: choosing wisely. I don't want to forget that fact of various. Uh, uh, factors to be taken into account, the life expectancy, or if you have a high quality colonoscopy, don't keep on doing in between the 10 years if that is negative, mm. uh, another screening modality, there's no need to repeat until 10 years. And also when it comes to geriatric population, not to forget the fact that you take all the factors into account of uh, their life expectancy and the uh, results of the testing, how will it will really impact the over-diagnosis and over-treatment. That could be having a significant negative impact on the geriatric population. Okay. And then um, uh, recognizing the different uh, uh, surveillance intervals for the once you detect something on the colonoscopy, such as polyps, as I mentioned, uh, the strength of uh, evidence is uh, very weak. And the quality of evidence is very low. That's why you can see a very wide range of uh, intervals that are recommended by various gastroenterologists. It could range anywhere f- three years, five years, or even up to five to ten years too. But what I wanted to emphasize is to remember one thing: the bigger the size of the polyp, greater than one centimeter or greater, or increase in the number of the polyps. Okay, the interval should be shorter Hmm. whether you do it in three years whether you are doing it in five years it depends on what we see there so that's what I would uh, conclude as the summary of this session
0: okay well that has been awesome Dr. Bathini and um I am I am extremely honored to have had you here for the second time, and we hope many more conversations and episodes can follow this one. Uh, thank you very much for taking out time to be here today.
1: Thank you, Disha, for making me a part into this, and I hope it is helpful to the audience.
0: All right, have a great day, guys. Until next time.
1: I will close the session with uh, one appeal. As uh, this year you mentioned, uh, March is a colorectal cancer awareness month. So try to counsel as many patients as you can or individuals as you can to increase the colorectal cancer screening.